One billion. That's the number of tobacco-related deaths that are due to happen this century. Here's another number. Eight billion. That's the amount of money that used to be invested in the tobacco industry that now isn't. Today, I'm going to be chatting with the person responsible for that last number. As an oncologist, she spent her career witnessing firsthand the impact of tobacco on the lives and all too frequently the deaths of thousands of her patients. But it was only when she sat down for a routine discussion with her financial advisor that she realized that actually like millions of us that have our retirement funds invested by somebody else in some faceless share portfolio, she was unknowingly funding the very thing that was killing them. The majority of all of her investments were in tobacco companies. Instead of getting angry, stomping her feet, yelling at the tobacco industry or her financial advisor, which is probably something I would have done, she did something way smarter. Instead, she got forensic about the influence that she could have. And then rather than engaging with the problem, something that with the tobacco industry has historically made no difference, she went on a one-woman mission to take away its oxygen, money. Now, since that day, she's flown around the world, she's had over 2,500 meetings, and she's compelled a long list of financial institutions to stop all investment in tobacco companies, something that was previously unheard of. And it's working. So far, those efforts have taken, as I mentioned before, an insane $8 billion out of the hands of the tobacco industry. Now, that's money that can't be spent on promotion, distribution, or finding new customers. So how did she do it? What does it actually take to go from I've had enough to getting an entire industry to sit up and take notice? My name is Julie Masters and you're listening to the Inside Influence podcast, where I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers to actually get to the bottom of what it takes to own your influence and then amplify it. And then use that influence to drive an idea, an industry, a conversation or a nation. This week I have the pleasure of chatting to Dr. Bronwyn King. Dr. Bronwyn King is the just the definition of remarkable. She is a radiation oncologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. She's the former doctor of the Australian Olympic swimming team and she is one of AFR's top 100 women of influence. She's also the mother to two small children, as an aside. She has also, as of this interview, managed to divert over 50% of Australia's retirement investments away from tobacco. Now, in the next 30 minutes, you're going to hear us talk about what happens when a cause finds you. We're going to look at some of the tools she used to get a seat at the table with some seriously powerful people. We're going to talk about using compelling language, finding the right buttons to push and how to make simple requests. And how sometimes you also need to go against the activist norms in order to actually make change happen. Now, I've done this a little bit differently this time. Rather than going into her journey, we only had 30 minutes. So we jumped straight into her processes, what she did, when she did it, why, what language she used, why she used that language. Now, I did that because if you take one thing from this episode, I want it to be this. I want you to find the battle that has picked you. And you probably already know what that is. I want you to really learn the tools that make an impact. And if I can template those for you, I will either via this podcast or elsewhere, then I want you to not stop. I want you to keep making small steps because having spoken to Bronwyn and anybody that's been on this podcast, I can promise you that it is relentless small steps that move 
in this case, an $8 billion mountain. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bronwyn King. Thank you very much for having me. You're so welcome, right? So we've got a limited amount of time before you're about to jump on another plane. Yep, that's right. right. I spend a lot of time on planes. I have, <laughs> I have given the amount of time we've tried to, you know, get this locked in. I've gathered that. But yes. we're, we're, we're going to get more into that. So let's just jump straight in. So question number one, I always kick off with, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or do you consider yourself to be an extrovert? So I'm an I'm an off the scale extrovert according to the official data. Oh, it's an official off uh-huh. the scale. So it doesn't matter what I think. The data says I'm off the scale extrovert. So I did one of those um, personality tests. I was going to say, what is the scale? It was about six or seven years ago, and I did this course, and they started off with everybody doing a test, and um, uh, yeah, that's it was Myers Briggs. It's a Myers Briggs. Yeah. All right, so, so we it's official. It's not even your opinion. No, you are an off the scale that's extrovert. That's right. It's scientific fact. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. The only reason I ask is that there's, I often find that people believe they can't make a difference unless they're an extrovert. Mm. And when on this podcast we've talked to a variety of introverts and extroverts, off the scale in every direction. Of course. Yeah. There's a course. huge wide range. Play to your strengths. That's it. Yeah. Play to your strengths. So let's keep going. I'm going to start. I'm going to start this interview by going backwards. And I want to start where that journey began, where your journey began on a fateful day talking to your financial advisor. Yes. Can you just walk me through that? So um, really that fateful day was March 2010. And I had a meeting, my first meeting ever, with a representative from my super fund. And that meeting had been prompted by the fact that my husband and I were buying a house. And our accountant had said, look, you two really need to sort out your money. How much do you have in super? And I had absolutely no idea. I knew super existed, but that was about it. And so I arranged this meeting. It was at the cafeteria at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre where I worked. And I sat down with this man and he showed me how much money I had. He ran me through some paperwork. I had a latte. I shook his hand. I walked away. And completely as an afterthought, I rushed back to the table and I said, oh, by the way, was I meant to tell you what to do with that money? And he looked at me and... um, and sort of said, oh, look, um, it's completely taken care of. You don't have to worry. You're in the default option. And I said, oh, option, does that mean there are other options? And he rolled his eyes and said, oh, look, there is this one greeny option for people who have a problem with investing in mining alcohol or tobacco. And I said, did you just say tobacco? And he said, yes. And I said, so are you telling me I'm currently investing in tobacco? And he said, oh, yes, everybody is. Now, I'm just going to stop you there. And why that struck you is your background as a doctor. That's what right. What you had so literally I'm, spent every day of the past however many years doing. That's right. And I think particularly for me, because my very first experience in medicine was on the lung cancer ward at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. And all of my patients during that three-month terms were suffering from lung cancer. The vast majority of them were smokers or ex-smokers. And nearly all of those people had started smoking when they were children. And we often forget that. And many of them had tried to quit during their lives and were deeply regretful that they'd ever... Um, been hooked and became addicted to this product. And so I um, 
was really affected during that term because despite living in the lucky country and having access to what we think is a really great medical system, which it is, it's still very limited in terms of what we can offer people with lung cancer. And so um, most of my patients died and I was very familiar with what really happened at the tail end of the tobacco story. So to find out that I in fact held shares in tobacco companies when in fact I spent the vast majority of my working life trying to help people who were suffering as a result of that specific product. It was something I just couldn't, I just couldn't let lie. And as I've, I've heard you say before, you know, when you hold shares in a company, you, you are literally invested in its well-being. Like you are hoping that not only it survives, but that it, thri that it thrives. That's right. That it turns a profit, that it keeps going. That's right. You want that company to find new customers. You want that company to sell more of its product. You want that company to do well. And so for me, it was a complete, um, it was just a contradiction mm. of my whole world <laughs> and it made no sense. And so you found out that, I think later on you found out that four out of the top five investments that your superannuation, basically your lifetime savings were being invested in, was tobacco or was tobacco companies. That's it. Now, I find that really interesting because we all have unintentional influence, you know, with everything that we do. There's an unintended influence in that. But super is one of those ones where it shouldn't be that unintended. For those of you who are listening overseas, superannuation is our forced savings plan. It's a percentage of income in Australia that gets taken out and put into a savings plan or an investment portfolio. Now, most of us, that's the largest amount of money that we, that we own, that we have saved away. And yet we've got no idea where it is because it gets taken away before we even see it. So we've got no idea where it is. And it's the largest financial impact we will have on our communities and on the planet. And we don't know where it is. Yeah, and so it's a big problem. And I was the classic disengaged member. I was exactly in that category of person who I knew that superannuation existed, but I had absolutely no idea what was happening with my money. And that's it, it's your money. It comes down to the individual level. It is our money. And, uh, and I think most people today uh, would expect that they have a right to determine how that money is invested. And certainly younger generations and millennials, in fact, really just expect that transparency is a baseline standard for really anything that they do. And they certainly expect that of their, their superannuation or their pension fund. Well, it's, it's definitely changing and you've been a massive, massive part of that. So for those of you who are statistically minded, just a couple of statistics around tobacco-related deaths. There are 7 million tobacco-related illnesses that lead to fatality every year. We are on track as a, as a global community for 1 billion deaths this century. And 100, as a parent, 100,000 children begin smoking every single day globally. And the tobacco industry is responsible for 1 trillion, I know it sounds like a lot of numbers, but 1 trillion dollars worth of externalized costs that we as a community soak up in terms of healthcare, um, dealing with the ramifications of the product that they produce. Now, all those statistics together, so I'm going to bundle all of that because time we don't have a lot of time today. You take all of that, you take your background as a doctor, you take the fact that you've just found out that you're investing in this problem literally with your family's money. You could have gone one of three ways with that. One of the three ways is you could have gone, that's horrific and I am a very busy doctor and I'm just going to think about that some more and probably forget it. Second way you could have gone is I'm going to get my, I'm going to get my superannuation transferred I'm going to tell as many people as I can I'm going to get on with my life. But you, you chose the little-known option. You went the road less traveled. You went with option number three. So walk us through what you did from that moment on. Well, I think probably the big thing was that I just couldn't sleep. I felt terrible to think that 
I own shares in tobacco companies. I own the companies. And I thought that my patients would be pretty disappointed to find that out. I thought the hospital would be pretty disappointed. And, um, and I just thought that I knew too much about the problem to allow that to just continue without being addressed. So I think that was the first thing. I just felt so uncomfortable I couldn't do nothing. And then I raised it with the CEO of the hospital and 24 hours later he rang me back and he said, look, I've booked you in to present to the CEO and some executives at, that, at our pension fund, our super fund for the hospital. And so a short time later that meeting rolled around. We had that meeting. Um, the executives who were there, I've become friends with them now many years later and they even said that they were a bit bemused at the time that one of their members was coming to them saying, oh, look, could you please consider investing in a slightly different way? Because it was a bit strange back then. It's only seven years ago, but it wasn't common at all for members to be engaged with their pension funds. But they kept listening and eventually I presented to their board. And um, in 2012, uh, that super fund, that pension fund, announced that they were going tobacco-free. We had a joint press release with the hospital. It was a very good-spirited decision. They were very proud that they'd made that decision. And it was just such a big thing for the health sector to have finance leaders standing beside us when it came to addressing this enormous problem of tobacco. Because for a long time, the health sector and governments have been addressing the issue of tobacco. But the finance sector has never seen itself as part of the solution to tobacco control. And so that, in fact, that moment was the start of something new. And that, that moment led to, I think my, my research, 2,000 meetings. You had 2,000, I just said a third time, 2,000 <laughs> meetings least, at least. with the finance industry. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of points there that I want to pick up on. One is the 2,000, and that's huge. And bear in mind also that she has a full-time job as an oncologist, plus two small children at this point. So that's huge, but, but bigger than that and more helpful than that in terms of people who are listening, trying to figure out how they can amp up their influence on an issue or on a conversation, is that you didn't go straight to what we would call the perpetrators. You didn't, you didn't go where most of us would go, which is making a large noise at the door of what we see to be the problem. You went somewhere else. You went to the linchpins. You went to people in the midst who have all the power and you had, you had the conversation with them, the finance industry. Why did you do that? Well, I think that um, when the first big pension fund went tobacco-free, I reached out after the announcement, I reached out to their CEO to say thank you. And we had a meeting and um, he saw that this was a really reasonable thing to ask of the finance sector and I asked him for advice and suddenly we had this new alliance and behind the scenes he very kindly connected me with finance leaders in Australia right at the executive level, at the CEO or board level and he offered opportunities for me to present it at pension fund conferences and finance conferences and sometimes he even stood beside me at these conferences and I could give all of the theory and talk about tobacco and the reality of what was happening and then he could talk about the practical aspects of implementing a tobacco-free policy from the finance side. And so it just built up and built up and then I kept having meetings and meetings and meetings and everybody suggested a meeting with someone else and I I took every meeting, early on, I just took every single meeting I could and some of them led nowhere but a lot of them led straight to a boardroom and um, the network grew and grew and grew and, um, and as you said, yeah, I've now had thousands of meetings in 13 different countries with finance leaders and... um, it's, it's fascinating to watch them all go through um, considering the same issue 
but in their own local or regional context. So the results of those 2,000 meetings, again, I'm skipping ahead here, there are now 10 million tobacco-free superannuation portfolios. Even more now, Even actually. more. My, yeah, my so in the around. past few weeks, there's been a few more announcements, so I haven't even got the most recent figure. But in terms of some of the numbers that we can talk about now, more than half of money run by Australian superannuation funds is now tobacco-free, so we've gone over 50%. A few more superannuation funds have, in fact, made the decision but haven't announced publicly yet. So in the next few months, it's going to escalate dramatically. And the discussion in Australia has really changed, especially this year. And now people are starting to ask me um, if it's a race to the end to see who's going to be the last one standing. And you're travelling around the world driving this conversation now. And is it? you're probably going to look at me and say, this is an old number. $6 billion you've had, you've had redirected from tobacco. It's eight. Is it eight? <laughs> she just winked at me. It's, it's eight. eight. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's now eight. And it... I mean, that's a nice number. In reality, it's just the case study. It's the case study because this has to go an awful lot further. But I like to think that Australia, we will be the first country in the world with a tobacco-free superannuation system. Uh, We're at 52% now, um, but that's going to rapidly escalate in the next year or so. It will be free at some point. Um, In the last two years, there's been tobacco-free moves made by very large financial organisations in 10 countries. And so we know that it is a very reasonable conversation. We know that financial organisations can still achieve excellent returns without investing in tobacco companies. And we know that people feel great when they make this decision. So the, I recently saw the CEO of AXA a few months ago. AXA went tobacco-free last year. They got rid of $2.8 billion worth of investment in tobacco in one as decision. You do. As you, as you do. do in one conversation. And the CEO was presenting at a conference and he made this lovely statement and he said, look, in the short term, uh, this caused us some pain, but in the long term, we've never felt better. And I thought it was a lovely way to phrase it. They feel very proud and leaders in finance all around the world feel very pleased to make this decision. It's good spirited, it's doing the right thing and it's helping the health sector achieve a very lofty goal which we can't achieve ourselves. Which you can't achieve by yourself. We cannot achieve. It's just not possible to change that trajectory of the one billion deaths this century. It's not possible without finance leaders standing beside us. So I want to break down what you did. I want to break down what you did because that's what this podcast is about. It's about break, getting inside influence and seeing if we can decode it and replicate it. So there's four things that I think, in my humble opinion, you just nailed over the past seven years. One of which we've, we've kind of covered, which is you went to the linchpins. You didn't, go, you didn't go screaming at the problem. You went to the people that controlled the problem. You also, you have this lovely line. Let me just see if I can find it. Name and fame. Yeah, it's our mantra. Name and fame. You didn't go to them. There was no blame. There was no name and blame. As well as naming and fame, I'm going to get you to talk about that in a second. You said you never called yourself, in an interview that I read, you never called yourself an activist. You were an oncologist. This was never a cause. It was an interest. And you never pursued financial institutions as targets. They were partners. And I think that those decisions were fundamental in you getting the partnerships on board that you needed. Can you walk me through where they came from? Look, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's because I had to really learn a lot about the finance sector. I don't have any background at all in finance. So it was a completely new world for me. And it was as if I had an apprenticeship 
in the finance sector and I was learning from the leaders themselves. And once I sort of got inside the finance sector, I could see that I just kept meeting, I kept meeting great people who I really liked. And I could see that they were open to learning new things and considering doing things in a different way. And I could genuinely see this willingness to change. So I thought that was something that should be celebrated, not something that fit into that category of um, some of those words you used. I can't even say some of those words without cringing because they just don't represent what this work has been about. And the truth is also if you go in with a blaming mentality and if you go in oppositional, the first thing that people do, especially if they're the ones with the power, they just they just retract. Exactly. So everything I do is about building a bridge between the health sector and the finance sector. It's a bridge that should have been built 20 or 30 years ago. It's never been built, but we're, bu we're building it now. And the truth is that I have yet to meet a finance leader who wants their children or grandchildren to smoke. And many finance leaders have in fact lost a parent or grandparent or brother or sister to tobacco-related illness. So the more I got to know these finance leaders, the more I realised that we had an awful lot in common. And when I pretty much just sat there and said, well, look, in the health sector, we're facing what we call the tobacco epidemic. That's the word we use in public health, epidemic. We're living it right now. This is it. And when we're all long gone, everyone will look back at this time in history and call it the tobacco epidemic. And, uh, and I would say to them, look, I, I really need you to consider helping solve this catastrophic problem that the world is facing. And so I think if, um, you know, if you can pitch something as a genuine partnership, it creates such good spirit that people want to help. Mm. And uh, so we're all about carrots. And, um, and, and that's right, I, I, avoid the, I avoid those words you mentioned terribly, so much so I can't even say them. And in fact, sometimes people have written articles about this work and journalists everywhere have written about it. And they'll often send me the final copy and say, are you happy with this? And usually all I write back is, I love this, but can you please, please not call me an activist? I love, I love that. I just want to pick up on something that you just said, which was they all have their own stories, because that was the second thing that in looking at your work as I have been, I just think that you did incredibly, and that was the power of story, epic storytelling. So you you have your own story, which I got you to tell that at the beginning, not just to set the scene, but also to highlight the power of an incredible story. So you use your story, and then you also followed that up by trying to figure out what their story was. Mm. What's their emotional, personal tie mm. to this topic? Mm. And then building a bridge using story. And I think that story is such a connective, connective power. Was story key in those early meetings? Absolutely. And what I found in those early meetings was really interesting because I remember very early on, I came home one day and I said to my husband, oh, you wouldn't believe it. The CEO of this superannuation fund I met today his dad died of lung cancer. Like, isn't that unbelievable? And so he was very interested in this discussion. And then the next, the next week I came home and I said to my husband, oh, you won't believe it, the CEO of this other pension fund, his sister-in-law died of lung cancer. And then I came home the third week and my husband said, yeah, I get it, I get it, go on, do it. I, I'm, I'm on <laughs> I to you. I can tell the story now for you. And the thing is, it's happened not just in Australia but all around the world. So I have a theory that the leaders of the world today are the children of the generation where everybody smoked. And the statistics with smoking are so terrible. So 
two out of three smokers will die early as a result of a tobacco-related illness. Two out of three. So of course the leaders of the world have direct experience with tobacco. And I would say in my meetings, probably one in five mm. finance leaders that I meet has lost a parent or a direct family member as a result of tobacco. And if they declare those stories to me during our conversation, I know we have an awful lot in common. But the very fact that you know those statistics tells me that you did as much listening as you did talking which is hard to do when you're passionate about something, right? You know, when you sat opposite somebody and you've got half an hour and you're like, I've just got to make this point because I really need you to take action. To actually take the, the limited time you have and put some time aside for listening, that's, that's rarer, I think, than you would imagine. Mm, I mean, I, I look back now at the presentations I've given and there's been about 500 iterations of my presentation and each one um, was modified depending on how it went down. So I was very sensitive to each message I was giving and can you imagine a whole series of slides? I was very sensitive. Whenever I presented at a conference, I would think, oh goodness, that one didn't go down so well. I've, missed, I've, mis I've misread it. It's, it's not the right sentiment. And then if it did go down well, I'd think, fantastic, that's staying in. And so I did really have to learn a huge amount about finance and I had to learn a new language. I had to speak in a different way and um, I, if I wanted to be taken seriously, I had to understand their world more. And so I put a huge amount of time into that, but I was extremely lucky to have lots of lovely people from the finance sector take me aside and say, just so you know, this is how we would phrase this. And, uh, and that was great. And that's led really nicely onto the third thing that I think that you did amazingly, and that was the use of charismatic language. So you really took the time to learn the language of the people you were trying to impact and you used that language. And when I saw you speak at TED, you used this amazing story about the language on the back of cigarette packets mm -hmm. and the particular language that had the most impact. Can you, can you just tell that story? Because I think it highlights it beautifully. Uh, this was in Canada. So there was a, uh, a very successful anti-tobacco campaign uh, released all over Canada. And... Um, Goodness, it's actually quite hard to describe this because you need to almost see the photograph. But we'll just, see if imagine, we can print the photograph. just imagine a cigarette that's bending over and the warning packet uh, warns of the risk of impotence for men who smoke. And when that was released in Canada, the very first response of smokers was to give the packs right back to the salespeople and they said, oh, could you please just give me the ones that say they'll kill me? And so it was, there are not many tobacco jokes. It is a very, very dry and serious and slightly miserable topic, but it was one of those um, moments that could make everybody smile. And I think that that speaks to, again, knowing the language that's gonna make, or learning, because no one is born knowing this stuff, learning the language that's gonna make the impact. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who works in advertising, and he's very involved in White Ribbon. And he said the thing that got him involved in White Ribbon was an advertising campaign way, way back when he was little. And it said that one in three women will be sexually assaulted. Will it be your mother, your sister, or your wife? And he said he saw that campaign and, he w and it just suddenly made it his problem. That language made it mm. his problem. And again, when you're talking to those finance institutions, by learning their language, by pulling out their stories, you're able to make it as much their problem as yours. 
And in knowing the language on the back of the cigarette packet, again, you know, it's the language that you know is going to make an impact. Someone's going to do something about it. How did you go about finding the right language, the right language that was going to make the difference? Well, the first thing I had to do is a little bit of a funny story about um, one of the regulatory um, frameworks for pension funds, not just in Australia but all around the world, revolves around this concept of fiduciary duty. And that is that when um, there are the board members of pension funds are actually legally obliged to invest money um, for the benefit of members, to maximise returns for members. And that is, in fact, their fiduciary duty. Try saying that three times backwards. Now, I had never, as a doctor, even heard of that word. However, I soon had to learn to talk about fiduciary duty. And, of course, I talk about that now six times a day. But the very first meeting I had with the very first CEO of the very first financial institution, I didn't know how to pronounce the word. So, actually, I YouTubed it. And then I rang my dad, who was an accountant, and I said, Dad, how do you pronounce this word? And then I'm testing it out. And then I said, could you just put it in a sentence for me? No, 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 another sentence. And so it was very basic at the start because it was truly a new language that I didn't know how to speak. So I had to, you know, just learn to become, uh, I tried to see myself as a finance leader. I tried to imagine what would I be thinking and feeling as I came to a meeting with me? (laughs) And what would make me feel at ease? What would make me feel like I could trust this person to open up and uh, learn something new and reconsider something that I've been doing for a long time? A very different approach. A very different approach than most would take, especially on something that they, as I've said before, are so emotionally connected and passionate. I think I also had to learn to be very patient. So I do, very much focus on the long term and of course I would love all of this to happen yesterday I would love it to happen today but that's just I accept it's not going to happen and I really focus on the very long term and that is I always used to say look if in 10 years 15 years 20 years however long it is we can look back and say we were the first country in the world to get rid of tobacco from our not just our superannuation or pension system but our finance system If we can say that, that will be an amazing achievement. An extra few months or years here and there in the big picture is in fact nothing. So let's just be patient and and take it one step at a time. And I also really celebrate each step forward because even though it might be a small step, a whole lot of little steps put together adds up to a huge amount of change. My final thing... There's so many things that I would celebrate you and your work for, but the final thing that I that I think that you did well was simple requests. I was talking to Daniel Flynn from Thank You Water recently, and I asked him the key to creating the movement and momentum that he has behind Thank You, and it came down to he learnt the art of simple requests. And again, I think you did that exceptionally well. You went to these finance institutions and you said, I just need you, Was I think it was three things, I need you to ask yourself three questions when investing and you made it super simple yes. for them to A, say yes and B, implement yes. what you were asking for. Can you walk through, what were those three things that you asked for? Well, no finance leader anywhere really likes applying exclusions to their investment policy. So most of the time, this is the first time ever that a financial institution will have considered applying exclusions. So it's really breaking a new barrier there. And I suggest that it's reasonable to consider having that very strong position on tobacco because of this following framework. And I suggest 
that you should ask three questions of any company in which you might invest money. Question one, does the company make a product that can be used safely? No, is the answer for tobacco. That's pretty clear cut. Two, is the problem caused by the company something that is so significant globally that it in fact is governed by a UN treaty or convention? Yes, is the answer for tobacco. There is a UN tobacco treaty that has been signed and ratified by 181 countries. And question three is, is there any other tool in your kit as an investor to create change and to encourage that company to behave better? And the real buzzword in the finance sector is engagement. Does engagement with the company work? Can you sit down and have a nice chat with that company and say, look, could you please stop causing so much harm or could you please do things better? And this is the critical part of um, learning about the tobacco industry. Engagement with the tobacco industry has never led to less human death. Now that's quite something to say and as a doctor, we're counselled very heavily never to say the word never, so it's with the greatest restraint I say that, but in fact engagement never works, it never has. So when you put that together, it really is a very reasonable thing to be very strong when it comes to tobacco companies. And in giving them that framework, giving them a very simple, clear request, you then enable them to explain that easily to someone, because we all know that the person that we're meeting with is rarely, rarely, rarely the person that's gonna make the final change. So you make it very easy for them to explain it to somebody else, explain it for it not to get lost in Chinese whispers along the way and for them to actually action it as a result. I'm gonna ask you a different question now and that's around a sense of gravity and a sense of who do you think you are? I was talking to some people yesterday about the question, who do you think you are? And the fact that you know we would ask ourselves that question a thousand different ways on a thousand different days in our own heads and we're so scared about somebody else asking us that question. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, who, do, who do I think I am going after this? It's crazy, it's insane, it's bigger than Ben-Hur. Did you, have you ever had that moment? I think I really try to put myself to the side in all of this and the real driver is in fact um, the experiences of my patients. So sometimes when I'm asking someone for something or I'm trying to pull a string or I'm trying to secure a meeting, I really, um, I don't care too much about myself at all. I'm doing this entirely for my patients and it's because they are, and it sounds very sad to say this, but they're not here anymore, so they can't do the work. But I am and I have all of their stories and I will use them to try to change things. I was just about to ask you if you've ever had a moment where you felt like, is this not somebody else's job now? Can I just give up? And I'm not because I know that your answer is no and I just saw you shake your head. So <laughs> I know that that's a no. Not yet. Maybe one day, but not yet. Not until this has wings um, and uh, it, we're not quite there yet. Mm. In Australia, we've got wings, I think. But uh, globally, there's an, awful, uh, there's an awful lot more work to do. But I really, um, I'm really happy to think that um, so much progress has happened here in Australia and... Um, we are absolutely delighted to show it, show other people around the world how it can be done. There's, um, there's a beautiful TED talk by a guy called Clint Smith and at the end he says, figure out what battle has chosen you. I think it's pretty clear what battle has chosen you. Absolutely. I think, I think it is a little bit heaven sent. Um, I think I was just in the right place at the right time and being an oncologist was a sweet spot that um, is very, you know, I've really... Um, milked that to be honest for all it's worth and uh, it's funny because early on in my medical career I used to never even talk about the fact that I was a doctor 
there was this huge tall poppy syndrome around in Australia when I graduated and people would say, oh, what do you do? And I'd start talking about the weather or something completely different. And now when I go to finance meetings, if somebody says to me, oh, hello, who are you? I'll say straight away, hi, I'm Dr. Bronwyn King. I'm an oncologist from Australia. <laughs> and, um, and usually it buys me a moment of time with that person and that's all I need to get the conversation started. Uh, my second to last question, do you, have you got any advice for someone who either A, sees an issue and thinks it's too big and just doesn't know where to start making an impact on it, and then B, on a smaller scale, anybody who wants to make a small amount of difference to this issue, this issue that has picked you in particular? I think the general advice for trying to change something, anything, is to believe that um, it could be you who starts that change. So when I was much younger, I used to think that just change would automatically happen because it was the right time, it was obvious, it Because should adults happen. were running the world and they Correct. obviously know what they're doing. Correct, and that the world would just automatically get better and become more of a place that we want to live in. But the older I get, the more I realise that uh, change doesn't just happen. It happens because individuals and organisations and movements get out there and make their voices heard and create change and they refine and tweak the systems and push them forwards. And all of that has to start somewhere. And so to, especially to young people who might be listening, it has to start with someone and there is no reason why it can't be you. And for anybody who wants to make a small amount of impact on this issue? Send me an email and I'll sign you up in no time. <laughs> or send an email to your financial advisor. And Absolutely. I think, yeah, on the broader scale, I think it's very reasonable that the financial organisations that look after your money are tobacco free. And I think that that's very quickly becoming the baseline standard that uh, people want and uh, people should demand that. When I saw you speak at TED, you said this beautifully powerful line. You said, I want you to imagine that there are 7 million people on stage up here with me, squashed on this stage because I speak for them. And so my final question, if I were to give you a stage big enough for you and the 7 million people, and I were to give you a microphone and in front of you I would put everybody that you could ever want to influence, which I know, having spent some time with you now, I know is everybody. So it's a huge room. What would you say? What's the one thing? What's the one thing you'd want them to know? I think it's really important that we count the people who are suffering as a result of tobacco. So today, 19,178 people will die today as a result of tobacco, and yet I know that not one single newspaper or news agency will carry that as a story tomorrow. These people are not being counted, and if you don't count the problem, you're not aware of the problem, you don't talk about the problem, and you cannot change the problem. So I would ask people to start counting the victims of tobacco. Dr. Bronwyn King, thank you so much for your time. I'm gonna put you in a taxi right now, but it's been an honor. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. 
If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.